It's 2 a.m. in Tokyo, 1900 in Berlin, 1800 here in London, and 1300 in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Monocle 24. Monocle's House View starts now. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up... How Boris Johnson proceeds from here becomes incredibly unclear. Everything is suggesting that confidence is draining away from him incredibly fast. And he has only been Prime Minister with the Parliament sitting for four days now. No deal or no idea. The UK's Parliament starts to put the brakes on, crashing out of the European Union amid some chaotic scenes. My guests Joy Ledico and Lance Price will discuss that and the day's other news, including... What do the Democratic 2020 candidates think about climate change? This week we found out. Plus, Sharpie Gate, how Donald Trump has left his mark on the issue too. And as we sometimes do in life when trying to grow a business, we misjudge some of the risks and find ourselves in an economic situation that challenges our business. When successful brands find themselves growing just a little bit too fast. I'm Ben Rylan. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined today by Joy Ledico, the journalist and regular contributor here at Monocle, and Lance Price, former director of communications under Tony Blair. We'll begin in Lance's former stomping ground, the UK's parliament. The past 24 hours have seen impassioned debate and some surreal scenes as Prime Minister Boris Johnson faces the twin obstacles of not only a house uniting against his reckless no-deal Brexit agenda but also a challenge of his own making. He's lost a substantial number of his own MPs backing, not least because he kicked a great deal of them out of the party himself, and one of them defected. Uh, Now, the Conservatives no longer have a working majority, and legislation to prevent no deal is making its way through the UK's upper house, the House of Lords. A likely future election now looms, but Lance, uh, that number of MPs that have been uh, leaving the Conservative Party, it now seems to be growing. Well, we've heard that uh, Boris Johnson's brother, his own brother, who's a government minister, or we're not quite sure whether he's still a government minister, because he's just announced anyway that he's standing down uh, at the next election, uh, saying that he cannot reconcile his family loyalties uh, with the best interests of the country. So um, in in the old cliche, he's resigning to spend less time with his family. But uh, I mean, what he's saying (laughs) is that he doesn't believe his own brother's Uh, policies, uh, Brexit policies, are in the best interests uh, of the country. Uh, Another Conservative MP, former chair of the party, Caroline Spellman, has just announced that she's not going to stand uh, at the next election. Um, So uh, more and more the Conservative Party and the Conservative government are looking like a very narrow uh, sect, if you like. Uh, That particular wing of the Conservative Party has got its hands on power, but what power do they actually have? Because they've been stripped of any influence in Parliament um, and they are losing a lot of credibility within the Conservative Party itself. And there's a big question over what message that sends to Tory voters. We know we're going to have a general election. There isn't much certainty around in politics at the moment. But one thing we can be sure of is sometime in the next few weeks uh, or month or two at the most, we're going to have a general election. And what message is Boris Johnson and his cabinet sending out to moderate Conservative voters in the country? If the party 
doesn't want uh, Ken Clark, then what is it saying to people who think that actually Ken Clark is their kind of conservative? Mm, well, precisely. And uh, look, it does, uh, the casual glance, Joy, would suggest that the foundations of the Conservative Party, as we know it, seem to be buckling. Uh, at what point does the floor completely cave in? Uh, well, I think we're fairly close to it at the moment. Um, uh, just to add to Joe Johnson appears not to have told his own brother, uh, the Prime Minister, that he was resigning. So, in fact, it was a sort of shock move. Uh, and I think he wanted probably no more arguments about it. Um, you go back to um, the vote as to who, who, uh, who would be the Conservative Party leader, Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt. And about a third of the party uh, backed Jeremy Hunt. That represents uh, the section of the Conservative Party, which has always been the moderate in the old 1980s term, the wets, who uh, in fact are probably closer to the Liberal Democrats and occasionally could even have been brought over to Tony Blair uh, at, at certain points in time. And they are now grievously, un- grievously unhappy that the party has moved so far to the right. The other problem is actually the Parliamentary Conservative Party that has seen 22 of its, 21 of its members sacked, essentially, without uh, any due respect and some of the, the their highest standing, you know, highest performing members. So how Boris Johnson proceeds from here becomes incredibly unclear because he has, a vote of confidence has not been formally called, but everything is suggesting that confidence is draining away from him incredibly fast. And he has only been prime minister with the parliament sitting for four days now. Mm. Well, conversely, I mean, confidence seems to never escape certainly what comes out of Boris Johnson's mouth. Uh, Tactically speaking, this seems like a rather curious way of going about being prime minister at a time when things are so tense. Uh, Is the confidence in Boris Johnson merely his assumption that come election day, he'll win all of that support back and these 21, 22, perhaps 23 MPs won't matter anymore? Yeah, I mean, that's all he's got left. Some people have been looking at all this thinking, oh, well, this is all part of a cunning plan um, and that uh, his uh, uh, Machiavellian advisor, Dominic Cummings, that we hear a lot about, and Boris Johnson himself have got all this planned and they've, they've got the Labour Party where they want them, they've got the opposition where they want them, they've sorted out the Tory rebels in their own, um, in their own ranks and everything is going swimmingly. Um, this is not plan A. I mean, they are, they are in a desperately difficult situation. Um, but the one thing, as you suggest, uh, that Boris Johnson can hold on to is his own self-belief, which I don't think has been dented, as far as we can tell, uh, and also his record as an election winner, going out there and winning elections. So he won as mayor, in, uh, mayor, mayor of London uh, in basically a Labour city. Uh, he's shown that he can get non-traditional Conservatives to vote for him. Um, but... The Boris Johnson we're looking at today is a very different Boris Johnson to the Boris Johnson who ran as mayor of London, as socially liberal, um, actually quite pro-European in in, in many ways uh, back in the day, and it's not that long ago. Um, The one thing, the other thing, okay, let's let's give him that, (laughs) that he thinks he can win elections. The other thing he's got going for him is the leader of the opposition. And the simple fact of the matter is, if Labour had a different leader... Labour would be on the threshold of wiping the floor with the Conservative Party. As it stands, Jeremy Corbyn trails Boris Johnson in the polls.
Those polls might be uh, somewhat skewed given the rapid change of pace we're having in politics at the moment. Joy, one thing that struck me as as I've been watching uh, some of the some of the paint peel off uh, Westminster lately has been that uh, Jeremy Corbyn seems to have been given a bit of a dose of confidence lately. It, there is there seemed to be a degree of uh, uncertainty around Jer- where Jeremy Corbyn sits on certain issues uh, in the recent past. Now he seems to be... I don't know. He seems to know a little bit more what he's got to do. Well, his party has clarified that they would like to see another referendum on the vote and divide that at some level from the elect- the issue of a, a general election, um, which is one thing. The other thing is that Corbyn, who's inc- been incredibly boring at the dispatch box and rather disappointing for years, in some way, the, when he stands up, he saps Johnson's energy. And so Johnson become, looks hysterical and Corbyn looks reasonable by contrast. The other thing is the noises coming out, what used to be termed as disputes within the Labour Party, and now we are generally thinking discussion. So they're discussing at this point in time, when should we have uh, an election? How do we frame this request for a second referendum? Um, And a lot of it, I think, is um, his shadow Brexit secretary, uh, Keir Starmer, who's an incredibly reasonable man, who moves things very, very slowly in certain directions and Corbyn is clearly listening to him and he is a master strategist, far better than um, this twerp, Dominic Cummings. <laughs> twerp, we'll give you word of the day award. Uh, uh, Lance, uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, one thing that we can be sure of is that an election will be held in the coming weeks, months perhaps. How does that actually take place? Because it does seem at the moment there's quite a blockage no matter where where the Prime Minister turns. How will that happen? Yeah, that's not entirely clear. I mean, as I say, the one thing that is clear is that there will be an election. The mechanism for getting to the election being called is still up in the air. Um, it's in, in one sense, it's in the gift of the Labour Party and of Jeremy Corbyn, as we've been discussing. Uh, he could decide, once this bill that's going through Parliament to try to rule out a no deal has been put into law by getting the royal assent, they could at that point say, yes, we'll go for an election. But I think wiser heads, including, as Joy says, Sakir Starmer, who is uh, um, a much smarter tactician than Jeremy Corbyn himself, uh, are saying, no, let uh, Boris Johnson stew in his own juices. Now, Boris Johnson's not going to sit back and allow himself to be humiliated by having to go to the European Council and ask for something that he doesn't believe in and has always said he wouldn't do. In other words, an extension to uh, Article 50 and us leaving the European Union. He's just not going to allow that to happen. Now, there are other parliamentary manoeuvres he might be able to use. Uh, One would be a simple one-line bill which says it doesn't matter what the Fixed Term Parliament Act says, we are going to have a a general election. It's not even clear he would get a majority for that, but he could try that. The other would be to have, and it sounds ludicrous, but then quite a lot of things that have sounded ludicrous have come to pass, uh, would be to uh, call a no-confidence vote in himself. In other words, to say that he and the government don't have confidence in themselves and force a general election that way. But that then would open the way for somebody else to try to form a part, uh, to try to form a government in the meantime. And that we come back to the conversations we were having a few weeks ago about the possibility of a of a national unity government or whatever you want to call it um, to see us through the uh, period to the end of October and then call a general election. So I don't think, although it's clear that um, uh, Boris Johnson is not following his plan A, but. It, 
there are some other tricks in the book, and we saw yesterday that they are willing to try almost any trick in order to get their way. Mm. Oh, just finally on this, we've got to move on to some other political movements uh, elsewhere. But uh, look, it does seem that when we talk about this uh, hunger for an election, Boris Johnson seems to be quite confident that he would be able to win back enough control uh, to, to, as Lance put it, wipe the floor, uh, so to speak. I mean... Theresa May seemed quite sure when she went to an election and things didn't go so well. Corbyn did much better than many had anticipated. Lots has changed since then. Um, Should, Joy, should uh, Boris Johnson be so sure? Uh, I'm not sure he should be so sure because in the heat of the battle of uh, an election... Uh, all sorts of things change very quickly. His numbers are looking good at the moment. He, he does indeed look like he could return with a majority. Um, it sounds very much like he will do a deal with the Brexit party um, to suppress the Labour vote. Corbyn, I don't think, can have the confidence he had in 2017, partly because the social media environment has changed and uh, they gained a huge amount of traction on places like Facebook, which has now changed the, its rules for the kind of small media outlets that pumped up the Labour message and they won't be able to do the same again. Momentum is not the force that it was. Um, However, in his favour is the fact that he has moved to this position of holding a a second referendum, which is actually very popular in the Remain camps or the Let's Have a Deal camp. And so he may end up picking up votes from there, people who people who may be natural Conservatives who simply cannot tolerate voting for this particular Conservative Party uh, that is trying to push us into a no-deal situation. And just mm. very briefly, in effect, we're going to have a general election campaign that starts next week as soon as Parliament rises. Corbyn and Johnson are going to be going around the country saying exactly what they would have been saying had there not been an election, but the rules that govern how elections are conducted won't yet apply because the election hasn't been called, so it'll be a free-for-all. Lance Price and Joy Ledico there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Yolene Gothan with some of the other stories that we've been following today. Thanks, Ben. Iran is to lift all limits on nuclear research and development. The move is the latest step in reducing the country's commitments to the 2015 nuclear deal with world powers. President Hassan Rouhani added that Tehran would begin developing centrifuges to speed up the enrichment of uranium tomorrow. Earlier, Monocle spoke to Sanam Vakil, Associate Fellow for the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. Iran is doubling down in its own strategy of putting pressure on the international community to provide Iran with sanctions relief and guarantees to be able to sell oil um, on the international market. And it's taking a much more confrontational approach in order again, uh, to put pressure on on Europe in particular. The nuclear deal is not dead yet, though, and it's important to look at the diplomacy uh, being led by uh, President Macron to see if there um, is a chance to freeze tensions and to return Iran into compliance. In the UK, as you've just been hearing, Joe Johnson, the brother of the UK's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has quit as Conservative MP and a government minister, saying he's torn between family and national interests. The resignation comes amid chaos in Westminster over Boris Johnson's handling of the UK's exit from the European Union. And the Solomon Islands has announced that it intends to sever diplomatic ties with Taiwan. The decision by the South Pacific archipelago will no doubt please leaders in Beijing, who are continuing to apply pressure on the self-governed island. It means that only 17 countries now recognize Taiwan. Back to you, Ben. 
Thanks, Yolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Ben Ryland here with Joy Ladico and Lance Price. Now we move into US politics. Yesterday, 10 candidates standing for the Democratic nomination for the 2020 election attended a town hall meeting event held in New York and broadcast on CNN. On the agenda was just one topic, climate change. Across seven hours of interviews, candidates such as Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden aired their views on how the U.S. should address the climate crisis. Here's some of what was said. We are the most powerful country on Earth. We should be leading the world to a global energy transition. And you have a president who thinks it's not real. That is idiotic. Walking around with our heads down like, oh, what are we going to do? We're in such great trouble. This is the United States of America. There's not a damn thing we've not been able to accomplish once we set our mind to it. We know how to do offshore wind. We know how to do solar. The question is, are we willing to put the resources into it? And my answer is, yeah, we better be willing to put the resources into it because the alternative is unthinkable. That was Elizabeth Warren there. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders also heard there in that clip from CNN. Uh, Joy, this went for seven hours. Good grief, that's a long time. Uh, Plenty of agreement on the need for action on climate change. A little consensus on what kind of action, however. It seems to be the story of politics just about everywhere. But we are talking about the Democratic Party, which ostensibly is the party that will do something about climate change. Well, the problem with um, environmental politics is that what you are then saying to the public and to businesses, uh, both your electorate, is we're going to put some more taxes on you, we're going to put some more restrictions on you. It's actually highly unpopular, as well as being cited repeatedly as one of the major concerns of the public. So in, I think, the US, about 70% of people say it's the second most important thing after healthcare. But when you actually say, well, these are the solutions people kind of tend to balk slightly. Um, uh, For the Democrats, you know, the the US was one of the kind of great leaders in environmental protection. Richard Nixon starts up the Environmental Protection Agency and they are for decades trying to drive through um, uh, treaties, uh, internal change, trying to make sure that they are being environmental. Um, George Bush uh, Jr. is um, not particularly helpful. And Trump is now being incredibly unhelpful and, in fact, is reversing the processes by saying, let's dig up some more fossil fuels. You know, we've got to look after the Appalachian communities. This has, I think, caused some level of um, uproar within the Democrats because this is where they could be uh, global leaders. Trump has also just tweeted saying, why are we to blame for everything? It's China who's producing all the emissions. And somebody has very cleverly come back and said, well, look, you guys are buying all your stuff from China. So that's why, you know, if you want to bring it all back on shore, you're going to be producing even more. As it is, the US produces um, a disproportionately large amount of uh, carbon dioxide emissions, something like 15%, which is way above what their headcount should be. And there is not a willingness to change it amongst a large part of the country. Mm, uh, Lance, there is a perception gap here, isn't there, as Joy points out, because uh, look at something we've seen in Australia for for many years. Kevin Rudd came into power on on a big message that climate change was something he would do something about. That was in 2007. And and since then, we've seen a lot of prime ministers lose their jobs most of the time because of some energy policy. Uh, It's a very difficult thing to enact. But as Joy points out, there is there's something to benefit from in the branding side of climate change, uh, saying you want to do something about it. But politics, when you get down to it, is about detail and policy. And the policy is very, very difficult indeed. 
how are the Democrats actually going to overcome such a scenario, given that uh, this is one of their weakest points? I mean, uh, opposition to the politics of climate change is in large part what fuels Trumpism. I think that's absolutely right. And the it's a problem in all countries. It's, it's, it's a problem, actually, to some degree, even in this country, where we have more of a consensus across the political parties than most uh, countries do, I think, or certainly most than the countries that you've been referring to, the United States and uh, and Australia, on the need to tackle the climate uh, emergency. But, um, you know, I can remember even back when my old boss, Tony Blair, was uh, Prime Minister, and there was an issue about whether or not we should be cutting back on the amount of airline travel. And he said, look, no sensible politician is going to go to the country and tell people that they can't go on holiday and that they can't have cheap flights to Spain and to Italy. Um, uh, the only way that you can achieve real progress is for there to be genuine consensus across the parties so that it's it's not something that's thrown around at election time. Um, and the problem that uh, I think the Democrats have is that the people who agree with them on climate climate change and on the climate emergency are probably already their voters. And when it comes to reaching out to the swing voters, the voters that they've got to try to attract in order to prevent Trump getting a, a second term, it's not one of the issues that's going to work for them. It might work amongst some of the younger generation. Uh, and I think there's a real uh, generational uh, split on, in terms of how, pe how seriously people take the issue. Um, but they have to find uh, another way of framing the debate rather than talking about it for seven hours and, 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 and saying very worthy things. And it was very interesting, the sort of disparity between the uh, candidates' um, mission on climate change. So was it Elizabeth, was Bernie Sanders, I think, was saying it's going to be 17 trillion the cost. Mm. And Biden, sort of who's far more middle of the road, was saying, actually, Bolsonaro and Brazil are the people we have to get in hand, which almost sounded like foreign policy rather than environmental policy, because he could see he couldn't make a statement about what the US should be doing and then still be able to speak across party lines to people who are potentially, who have been Republicans who may come across. Mm. One of the curliest political issues the Democrats will have to face going into 2020 for sure. Uh, we are short on time. Let's move along now. Uh, finally, we stay with the climate crisis, although a crisis of a slightly more local nature, namely within the Oval Office and what commentators are already calling Sharpie Gate. How original. Uh, President Donald Trump gave a presentation this week on Hurricane Dorian in which a map showing the storm's path seemed to have been tweaked or manipulated by a Sharpie permanent marker. The modification was reportedly made in order to support a previously made, yet false, comment from Trump that the storm might reach the state of Alabama and not just Florida on the East Coast. Uh, Joy, does the... I'm sorry to put this question to you. Does the planet stand a chance when the most powerful government on Earth is tiptoeing around Trump's ego, wielding a Sharpie? Well, I think... Um George Orwell might have been a bit optimistic that when, in fact, news was rewritten historically, it would be done well. Um, you could just imagine some little official there going, quick, we've just got to fix this little bit of history because it doesn't tally with what Trump has said. Who's got a felt-tip pen? Um, it is quite <laughs> it is quite extraordinary. It's also extremely uh, childish in many ways and um, qu quite embarrassing. I mean, if 
I think I've, I mean, I, I, I've been wordless when every time I've just speechless every time I've watched it. Um, it's, it's it's not even a very straight line. No, it? it's not. It's really poorly done. I think that's the worst part of it. Uh, although it, it actually isn't the worst part of it, is it? Because interestingly, altering government weather forecasts is actually against the law. And I mean, what the president says, particularly in the Oval Office, is supposed to be quite important, Lance. Well, I think we've had long enough of President Trump in office to to, to realise that what's said by the Oval Office and said by the President can't be taken at, at, at face value. And I think the real significance of this, actually, or or the the lesson to be drawn from it by all politicians, is the power of an image. So he's he's lied through his teeth on all sorts of things. But when you can actually see it there on a map, uh, the visual image, uh, I think, really resonates in a way that words don't always. Um, and uh, there are lots and lots of things, and you can think of it in British politics and the debate we started having about, about Brexit. You know, the images that resonate is Boris Johnson standing in front of the bus with the 350 million of it, or Nigel Farage standing in front of that dreadful poster um, uh, claiming that uh, you know, a wave of immigration was about to uh, uh, overwhelm, overwhelm the United Kingdom. Uh, and I think the fact that um, uh, the President Trump has been so sensitive about this um, is because it's kind of there. He can You can just see it on the screen uh, and, and people connect with that far more than they do with some of the ludicrous things that he says on Twitter. But it begins to remind you of a, a series of um, gifts that were going round when he was signing his executive orders and he would turn his book round and various people had manipulated the writing to sort of show <laughs> childish writing or yes. silly stories or him yeah. drawing, you know, graffiti on the book. And suddenly all that becomes suddenly what was seen as a joke has actually been carried out you know in with an official photograph i mean it is that that particular gif is the gif that keeps on uh gifing and giving uh i just i just want to get a, a quick word of from you on on this because it is something that often comes up whenever we talk about some uh, bizarre uh bumbling buffoonery that donald trump has indulged us all in I mean, is this is this another example of chaos and incompetence at the highest level in the United States government or a calculated distraction? It does does the president want us to be talking about this so we're not talking about something else, Lance? I think that's often the case. I'm not sure it's the case here because it's a very weird one to have chosen. Uh, this is the dead cat theory that when people, when the whole political conversation is about something you're not happy with, you throw a dead cat on the table, everyone says, look, there's a dead cat on the table, starts talking about that rather than what they were talking about before. Um, I think he's done that many, many, many times. It's definitely part of his strategy. It's absolutely transparent. But if this is a dead cat, it's not a very good one. Um, is it, I'm rather uh, coming to the belief that we should examine these dead cats very carefully and they can in fact be turned as a weapon against the people who keep throwing them on the table and I weaponize the cat I would say prorogation was a dead cat and um, they have uh, parliament has taken it apart dissected it and decided that the person who actually murdered the cat was Boris Johnson and it's just turned back on him and the same you can do the same with this sort of little sharpie thing which is saying who is you may be trying to distract us but you know we are all paying attention to your the means of distraction so I say bring on the dead cats and um, use them against the, whoever's throwing them. My goodness. Larry uh, the cat had better beware. The, <laughs> the revolution will be led by reanimated zombie cats. Lance Price and Joy Ledico, thank you both. In a moment, when the fashion industry moves just a little bit too fast, you're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Ben Rylan. Finally today, Monocle's fashion editor Jamie Waters considers the perils of growing a brand too quickly. 
cautionary tale unfolded this week in Helsinki concerning the Finnish fashion brand Samuji. Founded a decade ago by Samu Yussi Koski, Samuji amassed a cult following for its clean women's wear silhouette and punchy print. At its peak in 2017, it managed 2.2 million euros in annual sales and had stockists from Tokyo to LA, a flagship store in New York followed. Yet, like so many independent brands, the cash flow dried up. International expansion is a risky thing. And last week, Samuji issued a heartfelt call on its website and social media feeds, asking the public to save it from bankruptcy. The brand wrote on a Finnish crowdfunding site that, quote, as we sometimes do in life when trying to grow a business, we misjudge some of the risks and find ourselves in an economic situation that challenges our business. The company was aiming to raise 400,000 euros, although 150,000 would save it from immediate bankruptcy. Yesterday, it revealed that it ended up with just over 200,000 euros. For now, it looks like Samuji will live to fight another day. But the incident is a sobering example of the volatility of running an independent brand, the danger of overexpanding, and about the need for a watertight business plan. The fashion industry celebrates beautiful things, but many of the small brands propping it up survive because they are canny with money and are hustling, always hustling, to get their designs in front of customers. Samuji's raw, emotional plea reminds us of the perils of being an entrepreneur. There's a lesson here for all of us. That was Monocle's fashion editor, Jamie Waters, there. Keep an eye out, too, for our special autumn fashion edition of the latest Monocle newspaper, which is on all good newsstands right now. That's all for today's program. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall, and our studio managers were Kenya Scarlett and Alex Portfelix. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist with Monocle's editor, Andrew Tuck. Monocle's House View is back at the very same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Ben Ryland. Thanks for joining us. Music